Well, you can keep Philippians chapter 1 open. Uh, We come this evening to verses, just the end of verse 18 through to the end of verse 26. That'll be our portion for study this evening. And our theme this evening is a life worth living and a death worth dying. A life worth living and a death worth dying. Perhaps like me, some of you have watched a, a few episodes. I don't watch, I haven't watched it in a while and I certainly don't watch every episode of it. But maybe you've watched a few episodes of the BBC series Death in Paradise. It's been on every January and February for I think over 10 years. It's set on a beautiful sunny Caribbean island. And the premise is very simple that in every episode there has been a murder. And a bumbling but brilliant British expat detective has to solve the case. Uh, And really the show, I don't think you're really supposed to be able to work out who did it. Uh, I certainly never really work it out ahead of time. Uh, but the show is, is really more about escapism. It's, it's taking the viewer away in these cold, dark nights in January and February to this beautiful Caribbean island for about an hour uh, so that we can get a bit of escapism. And maybe some of us, uh, when we see things like that on TV, we think, well, wouldn't that be the life uh, living on one of those sunny little islands, maybe just a little, uh, a little uh, cottage by the beach, a little house, a little shack by the beach, slower pace of life, uh, much less busyness. Uh, you just, what a life that would be. Other people, that, that doesn't sound like the life at all. That sounds dreadful. And they're more driven perhaps by achievement. And they have no desire to sit in a, Caribbe- a Caribbean beach. Uh, for them, life is about Uh, pressing on to the next thing and the next thing and uh, making money or expanding a a huge big business or uh, and and perhaps things get sacrificed in in the aim of just getting as much as we can or achieving as much as we can Um, for others they maybe try to fill their life with entertainment and they're living for uh, the next music album that comes out or the next great show or the next great movie Uh, they they look for the great experiences of life be it Uh, sport or entertainment or uh, physical pleasure of some kind. People around us are living for all kinds of things or trying to live for all kinds of things. And yet all of those things I've just mentioned have downsides. That beautiful Caribbean island is probably impoverished. It probably gets battered a couple of times a year by uh, tropical storms. You'd be a long, long way from home. That money that's made could be quickly lost in bad ventures. That pleasure never fully satisfies. It always has to be on to the next thing and the next thing without ever really feeling content. We might be left wondering, well, is there any life truly worth living? Is there any life that brings that contentment and that meaning and that joy that our souls long for? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us that there is such a life. And he describes it again and again in the letter to the Philippians. This is a man that had come through far worse difficulties and traumas uh, than any of us have faced or are likely to face. And yet he says in Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And those are really the key words for us to consider this evening. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul describes for us in this passage a life worth living and a death worth dying. 
There's no real natural break from what we looked at last week. We just pick up, pick up where we left off at the tail end of verse 18. As Paul has been rejoicing at the advance of the gospel. And he continues to rejoice as he considers his life's purpose in this next passage. That despite his imprisonment and despite rivals that we thought about briefly last week. Preaching the gospel for perhaps even for malicious motives. Paul is still rejoicing. And we'll see why as we make our way through uh, these handful of verses this evening. So let's think first of all together about Paul's eager expectation. Paul's eager expectation. He is eager. He is excited about something. Look at verse 20. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. But that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honoured in my body, whether by life or by death. It's interesting that Paul puts it that way. He is eagerly expecting something. Some of your translations uh, might go with a different English word. But in the original language, this particular word in the Greek, it's only used here and in one other place in the New Testament. Romans 8 verse 19 Where Paul says that creation is groaning. Creation is eagerly longing for renewal. For the return of Christ and and the the new heavens and the new earth. And so the word here, it's very rare in the New Testament. But it has the idea of straining at something. Longing for something. It's like when you have perhaps a, a dog on a lead. And it just cannot get forward quickly enough. It just wants to investigate everything. And it's straining at the lead to go forward. Well, what's Paul eager about? What's he straining for? He says in verse 20 that Christ will be honoured in my body, whether by life or by death. What does he mean there? To honour Christ in his body. Well, by body, Paul simply means his, his physical, his actual physical daily life on earth. And so at the very least, honouring Christ in our bodies means thinking of Christ, including Christ in our priorities and our meditations and our daily decisions. If you have a close friend or family member or spouse, one of the ways you honour them is by considering them, giving care to how you speak to them or about them, factoring them in to your daily life. You're not honouring your spouse or other members of your family or friendships, if you, if you never make time for them, if you never think about them, if you never include them in your decisions and plans. And similarly, on a daily basis, we honour Christ by setting aside time to listen to him, to listen to his word, to live according to his commandments, by taking opportunities to speak about him to unbelievers. We saw last week how Paul was doing that even as a prisoner. He was taking every opportunity to preach. Just look at verse 12 again. What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known. And he goes on to all all people, (coughs) to the guards and to all the rest, that my imprisonment is for Christ. If Paul was going to be a prisoner of Rome, he was going to be a Christ-honoring prisoner. What he wanted people to know about him more than anything else was that he loved the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to appreciate, friends, that Paul didn't always find this easy. 
This is the mistaken impression that we maybe sometimes have that witnessing and preaching and church planting was all just a breeze for Paul. Not at all. Look what he says in verse 19. He says, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus, this will turn out for my deliverance. He's talking here about his situation again. Uh, the, the fact that he is uh, stuck here in prison and yet trying to proclaim Christ. Paul didn't always find it easy to be a gospel witness. He didn't always feel confident and courageous about publicly declaring his faith. And so he asks the Philippians to pray for him. He says, I need your prayers. I, I need the help of the Holy Spirit to keep on honouring Christ day by day here in Rome. He says in verse 19, I know this will turn out for my deliverance. The word there could also be salvation. Uh, some commentators suggest that Paul has in mind their deliverance on the day of judgment. In other words, he's saying that he wants, he's asking for prayer. He's asking for the Spirit's help to keep on going with the task that God has given him until he stands before his judge. And that he'll be able to, uh, that his judge will look at his life and see that Paul took every opportunity. That his whole life was spent honouring Christ. This is Paul's eager expectation. And this is what he's then asking the the Philippians to pray for him. That he would courageously honour Christ each day of his life. And so once again, friends, we're reminded of the importance and the place of prayer. Praying regularly for each other. And perhaps we're reminded too about the priorities that our prayers should have. It's not wrong at all. There's, there's other parts of scripture that, that show us that it's right to pray for our physical and practical needs. The, the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says that we're to pray, give us this day our daily bread, the, the things that we need physically and, ment- and materially. But here's Paul who is in more physical and material need than any of us, or perhaps even any of the people that he's writing to. And the first prayer request of his letter is that he would honour Christ. He doesn't start off by saying, you know, if you could send me a care package once a week, that would be great. If you could send a few people just to spend some time with me and feeling a bit lonely. He says, no, first prayer point, that I would honour Christ. And he, he realised that the power of prayer to help him achieve his ends, the need he had of prayer so that he would continue to courageously preach. Do we need to think more highly of prayer, friends? Do we need to believe more strongly in the power of prayer? Never think that your prayers aren't important. They're one of the most important means that God uses to bring about his purposes. You think of the prayer of Daniel, for example, in Daniel chapter 9. It's one of the longest prayers in the whole Bible. And Daniel in exile in Babylon reads in Jeremiah about the the promise of an end to exile. And what does he do? He confesses the the sins of his nation and he asks for God to bring about the end of that exile. And the question is, well, why is that big, long prayer in the Bible? Well, perhaps the reason is simply because God answered it. God did end the exile. He had said, if my people, if you find yourself in exile and you pray to me and turn to me and repent, I will be gracious. So Daniel 9 is in the Bible to show us the power of prayer. And likewise, friends, Paul knew how vital it is that the people of God pray for one another, for the situations we find ourselves in, for the opportunities that we have 
for the courage needed to honour Christ. That's a prayer that we should be praying for one another on a daily and weekly basis. As you go back into all your various spheres of employment and study and uh, the pressures of family life tomorrow, we would honour Christ. Our teachers need prayer to honour Christ as various things are forced into school curriculums and various new approaches are taken to the pastoral care of pupils and challenges come up as to how uh, to manage the, uh, the, the various issues that are coming into the life of young people in our society now that just even 5, 10, 15 years ago would never have been considered. You need to pray for those in education and, and in school life to be able to honour Christ. And our young people themselves being encouraged to live solely for some of the things we mentioned at the beginning. Sexual experience, this endless obsession with sexual identity, entertainment, self-promotion. Our young people need prayer so that they will honour Christ. Those of you who are older and perhaps not with the opportunities or energy to be involved in some of the ministries that once you were, you can still be honouring Christ, rejoicing in Christ, not getting bitter in old age or discouraged or frustrated by the limitations, but perhaps giving yourself to prayer more than ever before. Uh, many of you will uh, know you, you knew and will remember with affection the late uh, Reverend George McEwen passed into glory just before Christmas. I was just reading uh, the tribute to him that's come in for the next issue of the magazine and some of the stories told of how he was continuing to honour Christ in his last days. Uh, when he was moved into a nursing home in the last few years, he was moved into room number 19. And so the, the nurses and staff that he spoke to got short little snippets of teaching about Psalm 19. Took them from number 19 to Psalm 19. Preached little... Uh, two or three sentence sermons in the back of ambulances told people to his dying day that they needed to read the book of Romans. Limited circumstances, health nothing like what it used to be, constrained and weak physically, but still honouring Christ. If a film crew followed you or me for a week of our lives, would it be obvious from the footage that they cut together afterwards that our top priority is to honour Christ. That was Paul's eager expectation. We secondly then consider Paul's personal preference. His personal preference. He says at the end of verse 20 that he wants to honour Christ whether by life or by death. So even if God should choose to end Paul's life on earth, he hopes that in death he will still honour Christ. And then we come to those wonderful words in verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he goes on, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labour for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire, his personal preference, is to depart and be with Christ. For that is far better. As you study these words, you get the impression that Paul was sort of thinking out the options. He was thinking out loud and just writing as the thoughts came to him. Well, if I live, I can do this and that. I can honour Christ in my body. If I die, get to be with Christ. 
in a way that I never have yet before. And it's almost like Paul is thinking through the two options as he writes the letter. But as he writes these words, of course, he doesn't know for sure what the outcome of this particular imprisonment will be. And he has to consider the possibility that it will lead to death. How does he feel about that? Well, on the one hand, he says to live is Christ. Christ's honour, Christ's gospel, Christ's people. But then he says in, in verse, uh, he says as well in verse 22, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labour for me. In other words, if I stay alive, great, fine. Plenty of things I can be doing. I can be writing to the churches. I can perhaps one day get out of prison and continue to visit churches and plant churches and preach the gospel. If he stays alive, he'll just keep doing what he's been doing up until now. But then on the other hand, there's something that for Paul personally would be far better. Verse 21, to die is gain. And he says in verse 23, my desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. That is far better. There aren't many people around us living with a worldview that allows them to look forward to death. And it's not in a sense perhaps that we look forward to it, but we're not afraid of it as believers. We, we have nothing, in fact, there's something to gain beyond it. The opposite is the case for most people in our culture that they're, they're trying their best to avoid ever thinking about death. And what happens at funerals and at wakes now is just becoming a farce as people try to avoid thinking, try to avoid any kind of um, discouraging or upsetting emotions or feelings. They just suppress all of that and play the person's favorite tunes or dress up or all kinds of foolish things happening now at, at funerals and at wakes as people try to avoid thinking about the reality of death and what lies beyond it. But Paul's faith, Paul's worldview enables him to say, to die is gain. Of course, it's important to see why death would be gain for Paul. It's because, and only because, he will be with Christ. That's the only reason anyone could possibly say to die is gain. Otherwise, death is something to be dreaded and, uh, and something we don't want to face. But if we know Christ and we're going to go and be with Christ, it's nothing to fear. Yes, of course, Paul can keep serving Christ. He will happily keep preaching and witnessing and praying. But for him personally, to be with Christ, far better. When a believer dies, they finally get to see their Savior face to face. They enter into a new existence where their love for Christ is perfect. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 37. The souls of believers are at their death made perfect and do immediately pass into glory and their bodies being still united to Christ rest in their graves till the resurrection. When we die and go and be with the Lord, sin will never play any part in our existence ever again. We will be entirely free of it forever. Think how much more we will enjoy and worship our God and our Saviour then. 
And again, friends, just important to understand, Paul is not saying that he, that he just wants to die just to escape suffering. He's not saying that he's fed up with just a rotten lot in life and he'd rather just come to an end. Nothing like that. He's simply saying that what he will gain when he goes to be with Jesus will just far surpass the best of what he has enjoyed and done in this life on earth. One writer says, it is the prospect of closer fellowship. It is the prospect of closer fellowship with his Lord, not merely escape from his problems that drives this desire in Paul. I see that's at the root of what we were thinking about at the beginning, all those different things that people are tempted to live for. In a sense, it's kind of trying, trying to escape problems. If we could just get to that island, if we could just make that amount of money, if we just could experience that particular experience. Paul is not trying to escape his problems. It's just that he wants to be with his Lord. I'm sure many of you have gone camping at some point in your life. Uh, Camp life is great. Lots of fun unless the weather's really rubbish. But if you're sleeping outdoors and uh, lighting up campfires, telling good stories, seeing beautiful scenery, it's enjoyable. But I don't think too many of us would want to live a camping life 24-7. I'm sure there's probably some YouTube channel where someone is living a camping life 24-7. But for all the rest of us normal people, it's not something we want to do all the time. Sleeping under canvas can also be pretty miserable at times. Eating the same kinds of food after a few days, that gets a bit boring. Uh, eventually you long for the better experiences and the greater comfort and peace of your house. But for the Christian, death is like camp life coming to an end and your best life beginning. Life getting far, far better. And so let me ask you, fellow Christian, are you looking forward to something far better? Do you share any of that sense of being torn between two options as Paul was? He says in verse 23, I am torn between the two. I wonder is that how we feel at times? Maybe particularly when we just see the mess our world is in. When we see our own sin tripping us up again. When we're just weary and, and we, we love uh, many aspects of our life. We love the things God has called us to do. But we grow tired and, and we do them imperfectly. Are you not then torn between what we have and, and what lies ahead? And sometimes then, Christians, maybe we, we don't really have a sense of looking forward to what lies ahead because we don't really think that much about heaven. And perhaps we have a lot of questions about heaven. What it'll be like and what will all look like and how we'll recognize one another. Those sorts of things tend to occupy people's minds. But the only thing that you really need to know about heaven is that you will see Jesus. That you will be with Jesus and you will enjoy him perfectly and you will be free of your sin. That's the vital thing to know about heaven. And is that your personal preference? To be with Christ. The ones we love the most, we just want to be with them. It doesn't really matter what we're doing, we just want them there. And a mark of saving faith in Christ is that we want to be with Christ. Friends, may we not be so caught up in the busyness and the distractions of the world that we aren't able to say with Paul, 
For me to live is Christ and to die is gain, the gain of Christ himself. So Paul's eager expectation, Paul's personal preference. And then thirdly and finally, Paul's cause for contentment. Paul's cause for contentment. He's told us what his own personal preference is. He would love to go and be with Christ. But he's not, he's not, uh, he's not resentful of the fact that that isn't happening just yet. He actually has complete contentment, complete peace. Look at verse 24. To remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. In other words, he's saying, maybe it's for your sake that my life on earth needs to continue. <clears throat> he goes on, verse 24. Convinced of this, I know that I will, I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So again, Paul's not complaining here. He's content because he sees that as long as he is alive, God has a purpose for him. And that purpose is found in serving the church. Again, it comes back to what he says in verse 21. For me to live is Christ. Yes, he will, he will gain more of Christ at his death and his entry into heaven. But even now, to live is Christ. And the rest of the letter shows us some of the things Paul could be doing the, the things that he would give himself to for as long as he was alive. He writes to the Philippians about the need for unity in their church. He writes to them encouraging them to press on in their faith. He warns them about some of the, the false teaching and the other dangers they could face. Paul had a ministry to continue for as long as he was alive. Notice again verses 25 and 26. I know that I will remain and continue with you all. Notice for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. In other words, if Paul is to live on, he wants it to be for the growth of the Philippians, for the good of the Philippians, for their further encouragement and blessing. Friends, if Paul was going to remain alive, it would be to serve his Saviour and his fellow saints. And if you're a Christian today, that is your purpose as well. Perhaps not by being a church planter, certainly not by being an apostle because the apostles have gone. Perhaps not by being a church pastor unless God calls you to that work. But in some way or other, the purpose of your life, Christian, is service to Christ and ministry to the people of Christ. We could say it this way. If you're a parent, to parent is Christ. To show your children Christ. To teach them about Christ. To be married is Christ. Husbands, is your wife a more joyful Christian because she's married to you? Wives, is your husband encouraged and helped and empowered to get on with his responsibilities? Because of your love for him. To be an elder is Christ. To minister the word to this little flock. To be a Sabbath school teacher is Christ. To be a school pupil is Christ. To go on a go team is Christ. To do your job tomorrow morning is Christ.
God's work, of course, to bring about growth in his people by the power of his word and spirit. But he uses us to meet that end. That's what Paul means there in verse 26. He says that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ. In other words, what he's saying is I want to be used to point you to Christ, to give you greater joy in Christ, to show you more of Christ. He's not trying to build a platform for himself. He's not trying to take the glory for himself. It's like Paul is the spotlight shining on the building, putting their attention on to their saviour. And each of us, whether we have great gifts or few gifts, great influence or little influence, lots of opportunities or few opportunities, this is to be our great life's purpose, that others would be served and would glory in Christ. Who is it that God has put in your life so that you can contribute to their progress and their joy in the faith? That's the language that Paul uses here. Who is it that you can serve in any kind of way that would bring glory to Christ? Jonathan Edwards, maybe the the greatest American theologian who's ever lived, he he wrote down 70 resolutions or ambitions that he had. And the first was this, resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and my own good profit and pleasure. Resolved to do whatever I think to be my duty and most for the good and advantage of mankind in general. Resolved to do this whatever difficulties I meet with, how many and how great soever. His resolution really echoes Paul to live as Christ, to die as gain. And of course Paul's words, uh, his attitude remind us and point us toward his saviour. And we'll, we'll think more about this as we come into chapter 2. How Paul talks in detail about Jesus Christ coming into this world as a servant. Now, the only reason that Christians can look forward to heaven. The only reason we can be with Christ is because he chose to come down and be with us first. That he chose to come and be servant of all. And of course spending himself and sacrificing himself in our place for our sin. And so in saying that to live is Christ and in saying that he lives for the good of the Philippians, Paul is just seeking to follow the example of a saviour. And so if today, if you don't know what you're living for, if today death is something you fear and not something that will be gain, look at Christ. Look at the service that he has performed for sinners like you to be saved and to be sanctified and to be glorified and to live a life of purpose and joy. If we live, may it be to serve Christ. When we die, may it be to gain Christ. Amen.